Welcome everyone. Okay, we are going to uh, take a moment to do an invocation. So I am Miriam Katz. I am the founder of the School of Hebrew Shamanism. Shamanic practitioners use many tools, including drumming, to alter our states of consciousness, moving into deeper layers of reality. To open today's panel, what is psychedelic Jewish shamanism? I will guide us through an invocation in the form of a guided meditation. If you have earbuds or earphones, the experience of the drum will be much improved. So we are going to do this brief invocation in the form of a guided meditation. So go within, connect in. Feel yourself renewed and 
graced with the cleansing powers of water. To your left, the wind of the north blows down from the mountains of the north, carrying the scent of fertile earth. Feel yourself held and grounded by the nurturing earth. The cry of an eagle draws your attention upwards and you notice the dawn star still shining as the sun continues to ascend. The heavens stretch above you in all directions and awe fills your heart as you gaze upon them. You drop to your knees, pressing your forehead to the cool stone, Evan Hashtiah, who holds back the primordial waters beneath you. Tuning into the churning and the rhythms of the earth. Notice how your heart feels in this moment, having connected in with the sacred six directions all around you. The heart space is the seventh direction, the direction of within. This is the sacred spark of life within you. Tune in and notice that spark, invited to grow and expand. Recognize the holiness that you carry within you and find gratitude to your heart for holding space for this journey. Again, welcome everyone. I am so honored to introduce to you our panel. We will be going through one by one and hearing from each of them. And these are all stellar individuals. I can say I've had the honor of connecting with each one of them. And we have such a treat for you today. And so now to open, we will be inviting Kohenet Rachel Khan to share a beautiful offering of hers. Rachel is, I'm sorry, Rachel Khan. Rachel is a devotional poet ceremonialist and practitioner of healing arts. She will open this conversation with an award-winning poem called Ba'alat Ov. Thank you so much, shamaness Miriam. It is so good to be together. Thank you for dropping us in with that beautiful blessing. Ba'alat Ov, shamaness. It's not only that you will be asked to face your greatest fear, be rent and completely shattered, and notwithstanding, your pulse will keep hurtling slap gallop in your veins, or the demand that you transcend that battle, rise resilient enough to mine your very soul's alchemized grief with no guarantee, only the possibility of any extractable medicine. It's that then, then you will become your own greatest fear, 
your own rather die than. Swim 18 knots past humble, 36 strokes through humility, 72 drown kicks in humiliation, the aquatic silence of Bitul. The ancestors want to wash away your trauma with their own beloved but badly battered hands. The angels hunker, ready to wrestle. The demons wait, open-armed for your embrace. The dead want to whisper an incessant stream of what-ifs to your waiting listening. Every magnolia has secrets to sing to you. Each cedar, a richness beyond riches to deliver. Obsidian wants to weigh upon your palm. The whale and hummingbird and lioness chanting. The stars are pima pleading streams of glow in your direction. The liminal will not be told how to exist. The realms do not await our bumbling instruction. Our plaintive cries for fairness fall on an unhearing that is galactic. There are great gifts in darkness. The light can be injurious. Most blisteringly, I have said more than enough. Liberty. Amen. Amen. Crazy chills when you read that, Rachel. Um, so beautiful. And so, Rachel, you have had some amazing um, experiences as an apprentice holding space for plant medicine ceremonies. Would you share with us some of the highlights of those um, those experiences, please? Yes, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for asking. Um, so <laughs> I was very fortunate to apprentice in the Shipibo lineage of plant medicine. So working with ayahuasca with an amazing maestra named Titaramaya Sita, who was my beloved teacher, still is forever my beloved teacher. And I'm seeing that I'm seeing someone's asking for the link for the poem. I will share it in one moment and I'll totally share it. Thank you so much for asking. The poem is by me. I'll share it all. So I, um, in my apprenticeship, I uh, partook of the sacred medicine of ayahuasca around 100 times and sat with around 500 people. And I like my experiences pretty machmir, pretty strict, straight line, straight. So my experience with that medicine was with that one maestra, except for when I went to learn with her teachers in the Peruvian Amazon. And... There's so much to say. I mean, I could really talk and talk and talk, but I'll, I'll, I think I'll see what, yeah, Cushy Cushy Medico, yes. Um, I'll see what wants to come up and be revealed, but I, I feel called to share that from my very first ceremony, um, which was in the Sacred Valley of 
Los Angeles, the San Fernando Sacred Valley, um, there was about half our circle was Jewish, including a rabbi. And so from my first experience with it, I was kind of blown away with how many Jews were called to the work and um, how much trauma is wanting to be healed and how much um, this sacred wisdom, this entity, this plant medicine, which really has its own intelligence and its own personality and wisdom is really working to heal the trauma of the world. And really um, navigating my own experience of like wanting to connect with my Jewish lineage, which led me to my ordination as a Hebrew priestess with Kohanet, and also not wanting to be culturally appropriative and learning that there's, you know, so much of our wisdom, which is a lot of it, the wisdom of the feminine, the sacred feminine, the Balat O, which we, um, in the Kohanet lineage, we honor uh, the witch of Endor, as who is called the Bala Ov in our Holy Torah. You know, there's this stuff isn't recorded. This isn't part of what's recorded. This isn't written down by the people who were writing stuff down. And a lot of the learning when it comes to shamanic work, it's not written down. It's passed down. So I'm a forever apprentice, always loving to learn. And... Um, had transcendent experiences in ceremony that took me to the desert, much like um, your guided drum opening meditation, Miriam, where I felt like I was in golden light in the desert. Yes, it's written in the white fire on the Nisa. And also a lot of um, healing of ancestral trauma for people and something powerful about sitting in a group setting is that you're connecting with other people's experience. So trauma that is related to um, Holocaust, but also not just Holocaust, not just a European experience. Um, so much trauma, not just Jewish trauma, but since we're talking about that, wants to be released and brought up and out in the altered state. Um, and I'm talking about the Sephardic experience, the Mizrahi experience, um, many more lineages than just what we might think of appearing first when we think of recent trauma. Sometimes in our, our current culture, we tend to default to an Ashkenazi experience, but so much more than that. And then it's about coming back to balance, you know, because there are so many secrets in the Ashkenazi experience that are still wanting to be spoken and made aware of. I'm thinking right now about the Opsprekarin, which were the mystics, the shamanesses of the times that came right before this. And um, I'm feeling that they're so alive right now and wanting to be awake and calling to us from the realms, the ceremonial realms. And I had experiences of seeing... There was one place where I'd find myself in a field when I was in ceremony and there was this group. I, I just realized the other day speaking with Miriam that it was a minion. It was, I would be like, Oh, it's about it's somewhere between eight and 13 rabbis. I was like, Oh, I think it was just, it was a minion. And these were really like Hamish Shtetl, like, you know, rabbis from, you know, Europe, maybe felt like somewhere between 16 and 1800 with long beards and dressed in black and, 
they would have um, items from our contemporary world, like uh, a cell phone and be in, in ceremony in my state and like be holding technology, be like, this is amazing. You have Safari, you have all of Torah in your phone. There's so much good and like really reframing for me. So always was amazing to me how the practical could come. I, my, my nature is to sort of tend towards the, the, uh, ethereal and the celestial and i'm so grateful for the way that the medicine brings us back to the elemental not just the celestial but the elemental and the earth-based and it's always funny to me when people say earth-based judaism because my experience is that judaism is earth-based judaism it wants to be earth-based it follows the cycles and so for me it was really about a reconnection a reintegration and um, so much overflowing gratitude. There's so much more to say, but I want to make room for everybody. Thank you so much, Rachel. And I want to let all of the listeners know that if you have any questions, you can put them in the Q&A box. We will be um, going through them at the end and offering them. So if you have a, a question for a specific panelist, you can ask, but just general questions as well for the whole panel. Um, next, I have the great honor of, um, of introducing a rabbi who has been one of my mentors from afar. I only just got to speak with him this week, and so it was such an honor. Um, rabbi Gershon Winkler is the author of Magic of the Ordinary, Recovering the Shamanic in Judaism, which for me was a game-changing book. It's just such a helpful resource. Um, he is a pioneer in the restoration of Aboriginal Jewish mystery wisdom. And so, Rabbi Winkler, I'd like to ask you, um, mystical states can be accessed through a variety of formats, and many of them without ingesting medicine, um, as you know, and described to us in our texts. And so, what are some ways that you enter into altered states of consciousness? Oh, Manischewitz. Four cups of wine on Passover. <clears throat> we also have the uh, horseradish root. That's our peyote. So that's your question. <laughs> In part, I'm sure there's much more. <laughs> I know there is. Uh, well, what what is an altered state? I mean, the state we're in right now without being altered is an altered state as well. When we dream, we are in altered states. Uh, altered states are in many, many shades, many, many colors. You know, you can go out into the woods and, and uh, surrender your awareness to all the friends that are there waiting for you. All the trees and all the twigs and every little leaf. All of it is a camouflage of great mystery. And when we surrender to it, rather than looking at it as a walk through the woods, but rather as a uh, a visit to someone else's domain, then we enter that domain. We can get into the altered state of the tree, of the grasses, of the mushrooms growing out of the out of the ground out of the rocks, out of the stone, because all of it is very much interrelated and integrated. 
For example, when in our Genesis story, our creation story in the Torah, where the Creator says, "Naaseh Adam b'tzalamenu kidemutenu," which is Italian for "Let us make the human in our image." So the ancient mystics of our people translated like this: "Who?" was God talking to. There was nobody around yet except animals and planets and stars, spirits. And so the answer is exactly. The creator was speaking to all of what had been created and said to all the trees and all the animals and all the planets and stars and said, let us make the human in our image. See, so we can alter the state of our awareness from the standard operational procedurally human place in a way that connects us to everything that is around us, to all the elements and all the beings with whom we share this planet. By leaving the state of altar that is human, which in itself is an altered state, because we really don't have a particular state. We think we do. We think we are starting out from a center of being human and then moving out into altered states. But these teachings remind us that no, 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 you ain't got no state. You're stateless. You're you're a creature without portfolio. You're a being comprised of everything, including the chaos of Genesis, the chaos of creation. That's why we're such a mess, you know? And all the birdies, they're sitting on the wire watching us go to therapy right over the parking lot. Before they crap on your windshield, they say, look, (laughs) there he is again. Well, there she is again. Because the bird has no problem. The bird came into this world as a state, identified and defined, has everything it needs to travel, doesn't need to go to Target to get new clothes in spring or summer or when it loses weight or gains weight. It is not stateless. The human being was told in the book of Genesis to go and uh, name the animals, meaning uh, learn about them. Because the only way you're going to know who and what you are is by learning about these beings that are integral within your own, your own being. And so altered states is wherever we want to go. You don't have to do much to do it. You go to the to the to your dog and you're in an altered state with the dog. You go to the to the elephant and you commune with the elephant and that part of you that is elephant, you alter your state. You move from human to being with. We are the only creatures, the only beings on the planet that write poetry about butterflies and giraffes. And we fly to the moon. And we send the little machines to Mars. 
we are always uh, trying, we're always writing about and exploring all the other beings because it is a part of us. We just are not aware of it. And so we uh, find uh, superficial ways to relate to that part of us that is the lion and the tiger and the bear. Ask the animals, the book of Job tells us, book of employment, some of you. Ask the animals, and they shall teach you, and the birds of the sky, and they shall guide you. Speak to the earth, and she shall show you, and the fishes of the sea shall declare to you. It's in our little book of Job, in our tradition, chapter 12, you know. We, we do not distinguish between a living and a so-called lifeless nature. We do not acknowledge the distinction between the psychic and the corporeal in our tradition. Earth and stones, everything is alive. You know, the, the Midrash, our oral tradition, tells us that when King David was uh, completing his uh, best-selling book, the Book of Psalms, uh, he turned to the heavens and he said, or maybe Master of the universe, has any creature in your universe ever sung as many praises to you as have I? At which point, the Midrash tells us, a frog leaped upon a rock in front of him and said, which is Aramaic for I sing more praises to the creator in a single day than you in your entire lifetime. And there are many teachings like that where everything that we assume is outside of our realm, outside of the human realm, is brought to our consciousness as actually not only being within our realm, but we're being within ourselves. We cannot be a full human without also being aware of all in our endless mystical universe that makes us who we are. Altered states are so many. There are as many altered states that we can achieve as there are species of insects. Each one with its own song as there are species of birds, as there are blades of grass. The 18th century Rabbi Nachman of Breslau, the great, great, great grandson of the, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem, you know, he talked much about this, about how important it is that when you go out to pray, you pray out in the fields with the grasses. Beautiful. Because they too are praying. You can get into the altered state of being with the grasses, singing and learning the song of the grasses. When Jacob sent the, the, his sons out to Egypt to get some food, he said to them, take along with you the song of the land. You know, every land, every piece of earth has its own song. Yeah. Very true. Thank you so much for your beautiful answer. There's so much poetry always coming out of your mouth. Um, it's, it's amazing. And I'd like to take this moment to introduce Hadar Cohen in out of Jerusalem, I believe, right? You're in Jerusalem. 
Um, Hadar is a Mizrahi feminist multimedia artist, healer, and educator. And Hadar has something amazing to say about um, how we can access a spiritual aspect of Jerusalem from wherever we are. And so Hadar, welcome, and please, please share with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miriam, for moderating and for the panelists and attendees and all the organizers of the Jewish Psychedelic Summit. It's such an honor to be here and have these conversations that are quite deep and profound and um, rooting it in Judaism um, warms my heart because it's you often don't see that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. It's like, yeah, I've been hearing with the other panelists. It's just like this talk of Jerusalem. And for me, Jerusalem is an altered state of consciousness, um, just as a city and as a concept in of itself. Um, I was born in Jerusalem and my family has been there for some generations. And um, a couple years ago, my grandma passed away, whose lineage is from Jerusalem. And um, I was super connected to her. And it was obviously like an incredibly um, traumatic and grief-filled experience, but I was so connected to her soul that she took me on the journey with her as she was dying. And um, for like weeks and months after, I started having all these really um, intense visions every time I went to sleep, and I and I and I felt like um, she was really guiding me on this journey um, to what comes past life. And I think it's really interesting because we as humans, it's like we're tasked with this really challenging journey of experimenting and experiencing the material realm, the physical realm, the time-bound realm. And one of the things that happens is that we fixate, our mind fixates, and it forgets that there's anything beyond that. And with death in particular, but also, you know, with so many other things in life, it kind of ruptures that for us. And it makes us remember that actually this physical reality is certainly not the only reality. And if it's a reality at all, it also might be somewhat of an illusion. So for me, you know, I had this experience that through death and through ancestral memory, um, I was always very connected to the city of Jerusalem and um you know, I, I was always raised with a lot of holiness and devoutment, devoutness to God. Um, and it was always quite confusing for me because I did feel the holiness of the land, but I also knew that Jerusalem was so much more than what was in the physical realm. And when my grandma passed away, she really took me to Yerushalayim Shalmala, Jerusalem of above. So in Kabbalah, there's, you know, um, parallel worlds that exist and parallel dimensions. And they all simultaneously correspond to one another. And there's a teaching that there's Jerusalem of above and Jerusalem of below, right? There's a physical one and there's a spiritual one. Um, and, you know, I feel like I've been very fortunate to find my home um, in Jerusalem of above. And when I found that home, I realized that it made me see the physical dimension in a whole different way. Um, and I think this is something that is connected to what Rachel was talking about earlier, about trauma and collective healing, um, which I think is really potent and really incredible. And I think that, you know, psychedelics and multidimensional experiences are really fundamental to that work, um, because for me, a lot of it comes to this question around safety. Um, I think this question of how do we feel safe um, is one of the most fundamental questions of our time, because 
we might think that we feel safe with police states or with militarization or um, with whatever that may be, but then we check in within our, our internal experience and we can notice that it's actually still filled with fear. And the reason why that is happening is because we're rooting our safety on a realm that is actually very transitory, right? The physical realm, we're trying to protect our physical bodies. But actually what we wanna find is where we feel spiritually safe because that spiritual safety is eternal and never ending. So, you know, a lot of the work for me, especially that I do with like Jerusalem, but also in life and um, is really finding like, what does it take for us to feel true safety and true belonging? And that really comes from a place of truly knowing who we are um, and not being, not being dazed that we are a physical body because that is only one aspect and, you know, um, one clothing you can say that we wear, um, but that, you know, we can actually find a lot of safety and comfort in the true essence of who we are. Um, and I find that, you know, accessing these multidimensional spaces, um, is how we find that. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a journey of great courage to be able to travel there. And we have a lot of support and a lot of different ways to get there. Um, and thank God we also have community that can guide us to get there. Um, but, you know, I see that as um, really just potent and incredible work that we have to do during this time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Koleka Vodlach, as, uh, as one of our listeners is saying, I would love to introduce Gon Ben-Ari, who is and is a very talented, might I add, Israeli writer, screenwriter, and musician focusing on the junction between the revival of Jewish prophecy pop and psychedelia. So, um, Gon, we had a really interesting um, conversation about your connection with the acacia tree, the shita, and its connection to the Jewish psychedelic experience. I was hoping you could share that with our audience. Yeah, please. First of all, I just have to say I'm, I'm so excited being here. Just the opportunity of talking about uh, saying things like that uh, out in public makes my heart uh, warm. So thank you for everybody. And uh, I just noticed you have the shita on your on your drum while you were doing the, the invocation. So uh, to, to to me, it, it seems the shita is one aspect in in, in shamanism that uh, connects the shama, shamanic the pan shamanic thought in some way to the to what I understand of the Jewish thoughts. In the sense that uh, in in the Torah, the insights of the holiest of holies of the Mikdash are said to be made of shita. It is usually shitim covered in gold or in choshet, in, in iron. The, the, the insights of it are made of shitim. And I say shitim in plural because it is only referred to in singular form once in the book of Jesiah when talking about the desert Acacia. The other I think 30 times almost that the Torah refers to the Acacia, it refers to it as Shittim, multiple Shittas, multiple Acacias. And in, in, in a way, a Shitta in, in modern Hebrew means a way or a method or a system of being. Uh, when we say Hashitta Sheli, it, it means uh, my, my way of doing things. So w- w- one of the ways of uh, that, that I heard uh, modern uh, rabbis uh, read this is that the holiest of holies uh, uh, is made out of 
ways of living, like once a believer becomes authentic to the true identity of the self and knows how to search their own way through the tikkun, this is what uh, paves the holies uh, of the holiest. And I, I met, this is what I knew of the Acacia from, from uh, our studies. Then when I came to Peru, to Iquitos, to do a dieta with the Acacia tree, it, it, it was this idea of a, a combined Shipibo and Jewish shamans uh, a few years ago to a diet on a, the, the, the Shita tree, a 30 people diet, mostly Arabs and, and Israelis. The Shita was brought from Israel. And uh, once we, we got there, uh, some of the Shipibo shamans explained to us that, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Shipibo, uh, when they are uh, confronted by a spirit of a, of a tree, which usually manifests uh, through a song or, or a specific sound, they draw it or weave it into an embroidery that afterwards one can read almost as musical notes, but also as a bookmark of the spiritual state you, you've been to. So when Shipibo shamans meet Acacia spirits, they usually draw Magen Davids. They, they draw like the, the Star of David sign is, is the, is the manta of the, of the Shita. And, uh, one, when you hear them, them speak about the Acacia, you, you understand that there is something deeply monotheistic about the, the, the idea. The, they, they call it, uh, Reina del Desierto, the Queen of the Desert. And its idea is that it doesn't need anything else in order to exist in, in the desert. It, it, it is fully uh, fine just with being itself. It doesn't need anything else for itself. And that, that somehow touches on the, the deeply Jewish idea that, that I think somehow we, we forgot that, that is so elemental to Judaism, uh, which is monotheism, like a hardcore, real monotheism, not uh, any not not falling into the agnostic du- dualistics uh, that other uh, ways of thought uh, f- fall into. So, like if you look at the Torah, a lot of what our, our God says in the Torah is, "I I am here alone. There there is no need uh, in anything else. I exist alone, and I should be I, I should be enough." And the Akasya, in, in a way, I, th- I think teaches that. I think it's it sounds a little poetic when when I said this when I say this, but I think it's extremely important uh, just because if if the world is not gnostic, if, if it is really one, if it is hardcore uh, monotheism, monotheism, then it means a tikkun is more possible uh, than in in the gnostic thought. You know, like uh, Christian philosophy, a lot of the times will tend to make you believe that, that there is another world than this world, and the connection between the two worlds is only possible through thought or uh, death, uh, basically. But but the, the hardcore monotheism that claims that all is one uh, is is striving towards a tikkun. It claims that the other world and this world are uh, have a deep communication between them, in the sense that this world is in the process of becoming uh, the other world. This is why we call it. Olam Abba, the, the, the coming word, the, literally the word w- w- which is uh, making its <laughs> its way here. And I think uh, in in a in, in a reality in which in, in the reality in which we live, where uh, our concept of reformed has been kind of soiled by the jail system. Now, when we think of reform or change, we rarely see a person who has deeply changed their identity. 
it's it's important to uh, meditate deeply on the idea of monotheism and on the fact that the other world is one uh, with this one uh, so we can use it as a blueprint to where uh, where we should change towards in a sense I think that's that's it about acacia. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Gon. It's so nice to know that there are medicines that are uniquely Jewish that are connected to us and to our roots and, and also universal, um, clearly. But it's wonderful to have accounts of people who have connected with them so that we have a path to follow. Um, speaking of medicines and paths, um, I am honored to uh, introduce to you Paige Linsenberg. She is an Aleph rabbinical student. She's writing a responsa to halacha, to Jewish law, on accepting sacred mushrooms into Jewish ritual. So I know this was mind-blowing to me, and I, I believe it will be also to many of you. And so, Paige, please share us, share with us your work. Thank you so much, and shamati to each of you. It's an honor to be here with all of you. So let's begin with the words of our ancestors since that's where we all began. Um, oh, let me see if, it, can you see my screen? Is it screen sharing? Yes. Yes, okay, great. So um, my the teshuva that I am writing is based in the Talmud. And so to show you one example of where everything else I'm writing is about, we start with the word pitriot which means truffles or mushrooms. And still in modern day in Israel, that's the word for mushrooms. And they are referenced several times throughout the Talmud. And it blows my mind that there's not much modern literature and commentary written about it. And so this piece of Talmud is Brachot 40b. And to give you a little context, and if this was a text study, I would I would read through it with you. But this, <laughs> this platform's not for a text study, so I'll just tell you. Um, in this piece, the rabbis are discussing which blessings to be recited for which sources of sustenance that we put into our body. And they specifically discuss which blessing for petriot, for mushrooms, which is interesting that they don't just link them in with all other vegetables in which you would say bere peri ha'adama, the fruit of the earth. Paige, just a brief note. We can see trees, pictures of trees, oh. but we can't see any text up there. Got it. I thank you. I thought you could see my text. Interesting. Um, let's see. It's, I'm looking at the text. It's a split screen with two pictures of trees that we're seeing. Got it. Um, let's see. Can you see it now? Nope. Hmm. Does anyone have any insight of why I would be able to see it and you can't? Someone's saying to stop, share, and try again. All right. Let's try. Now do you see it? We see the trees as one united picture now. <laughs> okay. I might be able to help you, Paige. I, I do a little bit of Zoom. So stop the share again. And then when you click share screen, you should see different options in there. So when you click share screen, does it give you different little squares to choose? No, it just goes straight into it. Then I cannot help you. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Good Thank luck. Um, all right. I guess we'll just move on without looking at it, and that's totally fine. Um, 
So I, I was showing you on Safari, as Rachel <laughs> referenced earlier. It's an incredible resource. Um, so in the Talmud, in Brachot 40b, it's it's discussing what, what I was referring to. And, um, and there are ma- many different places throughout the Talmud that it discusses Petriot. And if you're familiar with Hebrew, you may be familiar that the Shoresh, the root of every word is very pertinent and significant and has a lot of meaning. And so often a noun, if you go to the root of that noun, that noun actually embodies what the result of the verb of that root would be. And so the root of Petriot, and I was going to show you that Safaria, you can use the dictionary on Safaria. So if I highlighted Petriot, you would see that it says truffles or mushrooms. And then if you highlight just the root Patar, it shows you that it means to free to break through, to open, which is incredibly profound that the word chosen for mushrooms is embodying this idea that so much, so many of us have probably experienced of what mushrooms really do. They break you open, they break through, they free something, they free the truth within. And so that's kind of the the baseline foundation of this teshuvah, this responsa, to halakha that I am writing of, and and then I then go into all of the other examples throughout the Talmud, and acknowledge, okay, yes, there are, you could be inferring this as just a culinary mushroom, but really when you look into the details of all of the different contexts, it's so clear that the rabbis were using this as a tool, as a medicine to break through, to open, to free. Amazing. And I'm sure that many of us who have experienced mushrooms can say that 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 is a process. And so, you know, in talking to everyone here, one theme that has emerged is that of shamanic death of this, you know, death of the old self as a rite of initiation to break through to the next level. And so I'll put it out to to anyone of the panelists who wants to speak up about how psychedelics can, you know, facilitate that that death of the old and rebirth into an entirely new state of consciousness. I think when you, when you choose the shamanic path, whether, however, on whatever level you choose it, it's just like, get ready for the ride because everything that you think, you know, and understand and those things, it's like, yes, I'll, I'll let go of everything, but not that one thing, that thing I can't. Then it's like, whoop. So And that's where the healing comes from, because just like Hadar was so beautifully saying that the things we think in the material world, that whether it's our physical body or whatever, that we want to cling to, to keep us safe, really, it's the safety that we really, really long for doesn't exist in the physical realm. (laughs) It's in the spiritual realm. And so that, that death is is a birth right and so it has to it has to be and um i'll let other people speak so i'm sure everyone has beautiful perspectives to share but i know for me that when I, once i chose the path it just it never stops you never get it done you're never like oh here's your little gold medal now you're good and you're whatever title you want to choose now i'm this no like you keep keep breaking yourself against the stone and you keep coming up against the humiliation and you keep being lost 
and they go, oh yeah, I, I chose this. I chose this path. Here we are, you know? So that's, that's what it is. That's part of the beauty of this journey of life. Even choosing just to be human. I believe that human life is a ceremony. And so when if we're born, we chose that sort of bumpy ride, you know, but the angels would do anything to like bump their knee on the chair as they sit at the table and break bread, right? We're here breaking the bread. And so we also bump up against life a little bit or a lot. Yes. And I also want to take a moment as we talk about sitting in circles, um, psychedelic circles or spiritual circles as Jews, um, and as humans, there there have been a lot of questions about how do I find that in a uniquely Jewish context? And I think, you know, there are other discussions and other forums that are more suited to finding those resources. But I do want to call out Hadar Cohen and ask her to share a perspective on how we can be more inclusive as Jews. And especially, you know, those of us who come from an Ashkenazi background and take a lot for granted. So Hadar, can you talk to us about inclusiveness, please? Sure. Thanks, Muriel. Yeah, there's a lot to say, so I'll keep it brief. But, um, you know, I think that sometimes psychedelics and these altered states of consciousness can be used as an escape to escape reality as it is, because reality is painful. Um, and it can lead to um, circles that then become ignorant of what is actually happening in the human realm. And, you know, my lens and my view is that... Um, the reason why we are doing these multidimensional exploration and, you know, going through all these different portals has to be because of service and because of collective healing. And um, that has to come with an awareness of like racialization and colonization and, and all of these systems and, and who's being impacted and um, who doesn't have to necessarily see those systems. Um, and, I, you know, I think that that can be a really big problem um, sometimes in psychedelic communities that then kind of become very white based and then they perpetuate their own realities of whiteness um, and are having, you know, these elated spiritual experiences, but not necessarily having this orientation to service and to healing, um, which is really, to me, fundamental of any spiritual journey and experience. So, um you know, I think that there's a lot to unpack around white supremacy and Jewish communities about normativity, about, you know, noticing, like, what do we think is Jewish? Like, I think we, we're at a time where we just equate Ashkenazi with Jewishness and something that is not Ashkenazi just doesn't seem Jewish to us. Um, and that's a really big problem. So also allowing us to just really deconstruct um, this question and, and really understand that that Judaism is like a global religion actually and it doesn't just come from Europe um, and it doesn't just look like Ashkenazi traditions um, and to really be honest about you know the history of erasure there and how we can be using our experiences of psychedelics and multidimensional travel um, to not you know run away from racial justice issues but actually be in service to healing those systems. Absolutely. This is such an important message. And so I'm so glad that you're here to share it because so many of us don't realize these things until, until someone speaks up to share with them. So having, hearing all of the teachers among us is, is so essential. Um, and so, um, as we think about psychedelics and using them in a Jewish shamanic context, um, are there any other, you know, uh, important lessons, life lessons that, the panelists have learned that you'd like to share with us about 
you know, what's really essential here? Where should we keep our, our kavana, our intention, our focus as we enter into these mystical, you know, deep states? I would say the three pillars to that are our ancestors, both your specific lineage from wherever that comes from, as Hadar was referencing, but also the ancestors of the land that you are on. And so that would be one. And then two would be the trees and all the other alive beings that are currently with you on the land you are on in that moment of medicinal ritual. And three would be your Torah, your inner teaching, your inner truth, and breaking through to what the ancestors and what the living nature around you can support you and do and tells you as well. But it's all a reflection of the inner truth within. And that's the power of this medicine. Absolutely. One thing that's here is that medicine and altered states of consciousness help they become the great equalizer. So first we start seeing humans as the only kind of real beings, and then maybe it extends to animals and, you know, an awareness that becomes apparent to us with access to plant medicines, with access to altered states is that all of us are beings. All of us carry a tremendous wisdom and connection um, and medicine. All of us carry Torah and each, each plant individually will have much to teach. And so any, any panelists wanting to share about, you know, individual plants that they've connected to or beings that they've connected to that have been powerful teachers for them and in what way? I think uh, maybe there, there is a, a point that, that comes to mind in the sense of uh, speaking about medicine as a trauma healer. Uh, from the Israeli uh, angle, we mostly get it this talk through the MDMA course, but I think there's something about the soil itself as a being or an entity or something that one can have a relatory, relatory experience with has been a huge part of my ayahuasca experience doing it with Israeli Arabs. The first time I did it with Israeli Arabs in Peru, uh, most of the talk was about the soil. Like uh, I was there with a guy who grew up in Nazareth, while, while I grew up in a village called Nahalal, which is about eight minutes uh, drive away. And it, uh, it, we, we both said that like when we were kids, we, we loved the soil as a almost as a friend. Like we loved how it felt, how it smelled. We were playing with it. It, it felt ours. We, we had an, an, an affinity to it. But then growing up, uh, the, the, the soil itself w was somehow tied, I think, in, in our minds uh, with political concepts. Like uh, uh, for me, once I became, I think, 13, to love the soil suddenly meant to be uh, Zionistic and then militaristic and so forth. And like, for him to love the soil suddenly meant to be a uh, Shahid and a part of, uh, of the conflict from, from that angle. And we, we were speaking about the fact that only only through a lens that sees the soil as a living thing, we, we understand the importance of reconnecting uh, with it on a pre-linguistic level before uh, we printed it uh, full of, of stories. Because like the, the, the trauma is, is, uh, is very complex. It's, it's uh, horrificially, it's, it's terribly like a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy to, to it. 
but on some level below the, the trauma of the occupation and the army service, there's also the trauma of uh, like living with the conflict, uh, with the media blessing us uh, with the idea of what loving the soil means. And it's the trauma of being alienated from the soil as entity, as a, as a thing one, uh, one relates to, and then just seeing it as a vessel of political uh, stance. Um, I think like the, the trauma of living in a story where, where uh, those who love the place they live in end up fighting and killing and getting killed uh, for it. And I think just, uh, yeah, the idea of it as an entity changed it for both of us. Absolutely. If, if there's one thing that, that Jews have in common uniquely as a people, no matter where we come from, there certainly is um, a, a dialogue, an undercurrent of trauma. And certainly in everyone's experiences, I've heard, um, you know, lots of uh, connections to those and, and ways to heal. And so there is hope and there is hope through this unique avenue um, to, to process what we've gone through and to heal individually and as a collective. And so, um, you know, we have such a rich, such rich panelists here. And I have to say, like, we've only just begun this conversation and I can't believe it's flown by so quickly. And so I really want to honor all of you for your contributions. Um, Paige, Gon, Rachel, uh, Hadar, Gershon, Ra uh, Rachel, sorry. I'm like scrolling through and just making sure I've, I've gotten everyone. Um, you all are so wise. And so um, if you want to learn more from these amazing um, teachers and practitioners, you can go to uh, the website. You can also join um, if you want to continue the conversation. There is a Facebook group uh, where these conversations are happening, um, the Jewish Psychedelic Network. And really, uh, we are just so honored to have all of you here together in community. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much.